0: Paxton Quigley is rolling out the green carpet, talking to the creme de la creme of innovators and influencers who are shaping the world of cannabis and culture. Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley.
1: Welcome. High Society with Paxton Quigley has not been afraid over the past year to take on some rather eccentric subjects other than cannabis. Dr. Sarah Mann examines how the pandemic, social distancing, and general anxiety are affecting people's sex lives and she's very much into using cannabis but she says no edibles we got to be careful with edibles because apparently some of them take too long to use and by the time you get that kick you might be sound asleep she says to use tincture And she also explains to everybody how the endocannabinoid system affects sexuality. I never knew that before, and probably a lot of you out there don't know. So this is really an interesting topic about endocannabinoid system, sex, and how to have, I guess, the best sex you can have under the circumstances with the pandemic going on. And we've been speaking with Dr. Sarah Mann from Mindful Medicine Clinic. Now, Sarah, I had also uh, recently read that when uh, women are uh, having sex and they've been on cannabis, they supposedly have longer, better orgasms than men. Uh, Can you address that, please? Well, that, that is the rumor. Now
2: I don't know about longer and better than men. That might be true, but longer and better than for sure when they're not using cannabis. Um, so there's actually a bunch of studies that say that, the the drawback of the studies is that they were interviews. So women felt they were having longer, better orgasms. Um, so whether that was a cannabis perception or a physiologic change, I don't think it matters to be honest, but, um, uh, Yeah, several studies. And what those studies show was it was not only women who had smoked cannabis just prior to the sex. It was women that just used regularly throughout the month and didn't use prior to sex. They also had better orgasms. I was just talking to a graduate student. I, I was encouraging her. Hopefully she takes her study in this direction, but to actually measure the orgasm, uh, there's there's a woman who made a, a vibrator that actually measures the strength and length of a contraction. And it can be measured and this can actually be tested. So I'm hoping someone is going to test that in the near future.
1: Okay, so that would mean that <laughs> this is getting very interesting that they would actually, <laughs> a, a woman would have to come into a clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would have to have the, the, the instrument put Where?
2: (laughs) Well, I believe probably the study could be
1: done at home and
2: the data could be just downloaded. But I did once see a study with people having sex in a CAT scanner to see what happened inside. So I wouldn't discount anything. My goodness! Yeah, the penis goes surprisingly zigzaggy, not
1: straight. Not straight. Well, maybe that's good no. that it, that is it's 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 not straight. It could get boring. How about? Well, how that explains that? what it does in those four inches. Yeah, <laughs> you are funny. Now I know that you've uh, uh, been involved with uh, uh, doing education and all of that. Can you uh, uh, let us know what you're doing in that in that area in terms of education and cannabis?
2: Absolutely. So last year, uh, community college here, Oakton Community College, uh, started the first college certificate program. So I was a part of that. And I wrote the course for uh, the cannabis pharmacology and for cannabis and society course. And then um, I will be starting actually at DePaul as well. So probably in the spring, I'll be teaching at both. But this fall, I'll be teaching at DePaul um, as part of their cannabis curriculum. So that's very exciting. I actually went to DePaul. So it's kind of a, a virtual return home. I hope to go to campus one day.
1: <laughs> now, does that mean that uh, they're gonna be offering at some point uh, a degrees in, in, shall we say cannabis medicine? Uh, what do you look like? Uh, what does it look like in the future? If you're, if so. you're starting to um, do this, what does that mean? Absolutely. Well, I think before
2: cannabis medicine, there'll be degrees in like cannabis pharmacology and, you know, some other stuff for the processing and extracting, which gets to some very high level chemistry. So I think those will be the first cannabis specific degrees that in the agriculture and growing. Uh, I do think it will become a medical specialty. I just think we don't know enough yet uh, about balancing cannabinoids and terpenes. But once we get there, it's going to become complicated enough to become a specialty.
1: Now, do you think this would be taken on by, uh, let's say, a uh, you know, which department in a university, let's say, you know, at, at Northwestern University, would it be in the Department of Medicine or would it be, I'm just saying social services? Uh, where would it go? I mean, if you if you have your druthers, maybe I should put it that way. Yeah, I mean,
2: if, if a place has an integrative care department, that is a good place because as its name suggests, it's integrative and it likes to take facets from other places or uh, places, but um, yeah, I would think either internal medicine or family medicine, especially with all the autistic kids, or in a more conservative system, perhaps in the neurology and or pain departments, um, if you want to really restrict it to the most crucial
1: of the, uh, the
2: things we use it
1: for. Interesting. Now, finally, what kind of advice would you like to give people out there. We have many listeners. And uh, as we were learning, uh, they they are having uh, problems during this time in terms of anxiety. Uh, Can you give them kind of a blueprint uh, of how they can uh, feel better?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you're, well, assuming you want my opinion on how to use cannabis to feel better, because there's a lot of answers to that. Um, uh, Like I said, start low, start with something inhaled if you can. Um, just because it starts quick and it wears off quick. Start off with something that's called either a one-to-one or a two to one, at least as much C B D. And then you want to in- take a puff and then wait a full three minutes, see how you feel, and take another puff. Um, and kind of see how it calms you down. And if it's helping, you can explore it more. And the most important thing I want to tell them is how safe it is. Um, I I know this because I've worked in critical care for 10 years and I've never taken anyone for any cannabis related anything. Okay. I've taken all kinds of drug overdoses, long-term alcohol damage, acute intoxication. I've taken a lot of things for, it doesn't matter if it's a pharmaceutical or a street drug. The only drug I have not taken admissions for is cannabis. I've taken more Tylenol and aspirin admissions than cannabis admissions. So It's not toxic. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to have an unpleasant, uncomfortable night, and then you'll move on with your life.
1: We might have been visited by aliens, says a Harvard astronomer, when a cigar-shaped object flew past Earth in 2017. And we might not have realized, says Dr. Abraham Loeb, the author of a new book called Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth. Now, i am got to tell you, I'm into extraterrestrial uh, things out there, let's call them. Um, i got to actually tell you that I think I was visited by aliens many, many years ago. I was sound asleep, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I heard this hum, loud hum, and there was a big white light, in my garden, and I wanted to go out there and inspect it. And at the time I was married, and my husband said, no, 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 don't go out there. He actually tugged at me, no, you can't go out there. So we just sat there for a while, and then all of a sudden, must've been about maybe three or four minutes, that big bright light that was out there in the garden went away. We didn't even really hear a humming sound. And to this day, I actually think that perhaps uh, maybe someone from outer space did visit me because I do believe that there are aliens out there. And so this segment talks a lot about what's going on there in extraterrestrial life. It's, it's certainly groundbreaking and in a way akin to Alan Hynek's 1972 blockbuster book, The UFO Experience. Is is there any kind of, can you say that I'm correct that, you know, because that was a big blockbuster. Will will yours be like that, too?
0: Well, um, you know, I operate as a scientist. I don't look back. um, And uh, I look forward in the sense of looking at the evidence we have. uh, And in this case, it's a particular object that was discovered in October 2017. And while looking at the evidence, um, there were a lot of anomalies about this object, and I tried to explain them as a natural uh, object that is uh, just like the rocks we have seen before within the solar system, but uh, there were problems with any of these explanations, and so I was forced to uh, suggest that perhaps it's artificially made. Uh, And, you know, it's not, I'm not motivated by trying to replicate the stories of the past. Uh, I just looked at the evidence and it looked like a plausible explanation for the anomalies that were seen. And I wrote about it in a scientific paper. And the the story became viral. There was a very uh, huge response from the public, of course, and the interest in the subject. And I decided to write the book explaining why I was. Uh, driven into this conclusion. At the same time, the scientific community was very reserved and uh, pushed back, and I also discussed that subject in my book, the fact that um, uh, we need uh, more open-mindedness in the scientific community to entertain this possibility that we are not alone, that there might be technological signatures out there, and we should search for them. Obviously, if we don't search for them, if we are not open to discover them we will never find them and uh, it's sort of like stepping on the grass and saying look the grass doesn't grow if you don't fund searches like that if you don't tell, if you discourage young scientists from entering this field then nothing will be discovered
1: now i want to ask you it was seen by a, a huge telescope in hawaii did, did these people like call you up how did you find out about it oh it's and, the- and- Okay, can you hear me now? Okay, now this was discovered uh, by a huge telescope in Hawaii. Uh, when did you see it? And did the, the observers call you up and say, we found something that's very strange. We think maybe it's a comet. I mean, did you get on the next plane and go there to actually look at it? Uh, how did this all come about? Can you, can you tell us from your, from your point of view
0: Yeah. So the telescope was designed to survey the sky and look for dangerous rocks that may come close to Earth. You know that the dinosaurs were killed by a giant rock, roughly the size of uh, Manhattan Island. Uh, And they saw it coming, but they couldn't do much about it because they didn't have astronomers to warn them in advance. And Congress decided to ask to task astronomers, to task NASA at finding 90% of all objects bigger than 140 meters, uh, a few hundred feet uh, that are coming, that may come close to earth. And uh, the Pan-STARRS telescope is the first attempt to survey the sky and look for such objects. And in the process of doing that, it discovered the first object that uh, came close to earth from outside the solar system. And we can tell that it came from outside the solar system because it was moving too fast to be bound to the sun. And so um, he discovered this object, reported about it. That's the way scientific discoveries are made. Uh, There is an official pipeline where uh, reports come out by the observers. Uh, The telescope is situated in uh, Mount Haleakala in Maui. Hawaii. And actually, I visited that observatory. I gave a talk there uh, in July 2017. Uh, But back then, it was not known that this object is heading towards us. Uh, It was discovered only on October 19th, 2017. So then I saw the report uh, of the observers. And of course, it was interesting, but astronomers thought it must be a comet. That's the typical kind of objects that our solar system has. And if you imagine an object like that coming from another solar system around another star, uh, perhaps, you know, it would look just like a comet. And that was the natural expectation. And a comet is simply a rock that is covered with ice. And when it comes close to the sun, the ice evaporates, and then you get this cometary tail behind it. Of evaporated gases. Unfortunately, there was no such tale seen around Oumuamua. The name Oumuamua means in the Hawaiian language a scout, a messenger from far away. That was the name given to the object because it was discovered in Hawaii. Uh, So it didn't look like a comet, uh, but then it started showing all kinds of peculiar features. For example, the amount of sunlight that was reflected from it as it was tumbling Changed by a factor of 10, and that's very unusual. It means that the object has a very extreme geometry. If you imagine a piece of paper tumbling in the wind, um, then uh, the area that you see of the paper projected, uh, you know, is not changing by more than a factor of 10. That's sort of quite extreme. Uh, and so, um, uh, this object must have an extreme geometry, and when. Uh, uh, people tried to explain the amount of reflected light as it was tumbling, uh, they figured that it must be flat, not cigar-shaped the way it was depicted in some cartoons, but but flat, pancake shape. And then, uh, in addition, so people said, okay, well, maybe it's a flat kind of rock, you know. Uh, but the problem was that it exhibited an extra push away from the sun, and uh, that is usually the kind of push you get from the rocket effect. When you have a comet, when gases evaporate one way, they push the the rock in the opposite direction, but there were, there was no cometary tail. So the question arose as to what is pushing it. And the only thing that I could think of is sunlight reflecting off its surface. But in order for that to be effective at pushing it, you needed the object to be very thin, uh, sort of like a sail. Um, And a sail on a boat is being pushed by wind reflected off it, air reflected off it. And um, in this case, it was light uh, reflecting off it. And that's called the light sail. And we are currently developing this technology uh, for space exploration. Our own civilization is trying to use it. It has the advantage that you don't need to carry the fuel with the spacecraft. So the spacecraft can be light, very light, lightweight. Um, And uh, perhaps another civilization mastered this technology. Now I should say that in in September 2020, just a few months ago, there was another object that exhibited this kind of extra push from reflected sunlight and uh, no cometary tail. And it turned out that this object was a rocket booster that was kicked into space in a mission from 1966 to land on the moon. And clearly in that case, we know what the object is. It's very hollow. And that's why it's getting pushed by sunlight. It's very thin. Uh, we know that it's artificially made because we made it. The question is who made
1: Oumuamua? And where do you think it came from? Do you have so, any ideas uh, uh, about yeah. where you think it could have come from?
0: Well, uh, the strain, another strange thing about it, and I describe it in the book, is that um, it was sort of parked in uh, the public parking lot of uh, our neighborhood. Uh, And that is the frame of reference where you average over the random motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. It's called the local standard of rest. And this object was at rest in that frame, sort of like a buoy sitting at rest on the surface of the ocean. And then the solar system, like a ship, bumped into it. So the relative speed between us and this object was just because the sun is moving in this frame. Uh, And so uh, that implies that you cannot relate it to any star because only one in 500 stars are so much at rest in that frame. So um, we don't know where it came from and we don't know what its purpose is. The fact that it sits in that parking lot, so to speak, so that you can't really tell where it came from, which house this car that is parked in the public parking lot came from. Uh, The fact that you can't do that maybe may imply that it, maybe it's a, a member of a grid of objects filling up interstellar space that is used for navigation or as relay stations for communication, who knows? But the key question is not so much where it came from, but what its purpose is. Is it space junk or is it
1: put there for a purpose? Dr. Ravi Koparapu, a planetary research scientist at NASA, tells listeners that stargazing has increased lately as many of us in these strange times find ourselves staring up at the night sky. And as a matter of fact, folks, just recently the Pentagon, released three videos that show unidentified objects. I think you'll really find this subject matter really interesting because Dr. Ravi Kopaprapu is a, a big, shall we say, a big deal planetary research scientist at NASA, and he gives a lot of information. To me, and of course I'm just you know an ordinary kind of person, the idea of life forms in other parts of the universe seem, I don't know, quite logical. Why such a taboo regarding extraterrestrial research and hypotheses all these years?
3: So if we are just talking about extraterrestrial research and not about connecting them with the UFOs or UAP, if we keep them separate, Um, Then there is already a significant amount of uh, research has been going on in the city, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, for the past several decades. Most of it was concentrated on radio communication, you know, sending radio waves and receiving radio waves from potential uh, extraterrestrial civilization but recently in the last couple of years myself and several others in our field have started thinking about something called technosignatures which is just like biosignatures where you know biosignatures are like to find signatures of biology on other planets or on other um, you know non-terrestrial uh, objects similarly we could have technosignatures the signatures of technology of you know, civilization. They don't. They need not be advanced civilizations. There could be civilizations like our own. So they, the taboo was because uh, you know traditional astronomers are very conservative, uh, which is good for science in the sense that you have to be very skeptical before you accept anything. But then um, there is nothing wrong in hypothesizing something and looking for something. I mean, when we when we look for biosignatures, we always ask, are we alone? So the question, are we alone, is, is being asked by a technological civilization, which is us. So they, there is nothing wrong, or you know, we should have um, more encouragement in looking for technosignatures or extraterrestrial intelligence.
1: Now, is NASA the only US agency equipped to undertake this interplanetary research? Uh, and, and, and what about other countries? What are other countries doing? So it's a 2 parts question I'm asking you.
3: Right, so so if we are just talking about the exoplanet research planets around other stars finding planets around other stars What kind of a atmosphere atmospheres the planets have then uh, NASA is doing it? Um, NASA is funding uh, some work on this one uh, European Space Agency. They're also funding a lot of uh, research work on finding life on other planets. Uh, there, have, there have been many discoveries. Uh, there are, you know, several other countries are also interested in this topic. Who wouldn't be interested? I mean, this is one of the most fundamental questions we would be asking, like, you know, is there are there planets outside our solar system and is there life on them? And so this is so compelling for both the funding agencies and to the general public. There's in immense interest in this, so there is a lot of work going on in all countries, and, and, and NASA is, uh, you know, one of the forefront researchers in this topic, uh, funding several studies on this.
1: Again, in in your Scientific American article, you posed what I think is an interesting question, and that is why should astronomers, meteorologists or planetary scientists care about these events these these ufo sightings how do you answer that question which ultimately speaks to who you are as a scientist and also as a curious being
3: so i would for for, for me i can speak to myself and i'm this is what i'm encouraging my fellow scientists also to do that we are fundamentally scientists we if we box ourselves in our own you know, field of work. I mean, we might succeed and all, but there are some interesting questions uh, and unexplained things, at least for the UAP related problems that I think uh, is so um, fundamentally, uh, so and what, what would I say? I would say fundamentally interesting that we should, at least we should have an interdisciplinary Team of scientists working on that. I may not be an expert on some of the topics that you know we need to investigate UAPs, but I can collaborate with a fellow scientist and then work with them because they are expert on something else uh, that is related to UAP. So we would be collaborating, having an interdisciplinary field of work doing uh, on working on this topic, and we can come up with possible you know explanations of these uh, uh, phenomena. And this is why I say that, you know, meteorologists and astronomers and physicists interested in this one, because we all have different backgrounds in academic backgrounds and we can come together and work on this problem to figure out what it is.
1: The moon is hollow and aliens rule the sky, says best-selling author and UFO investigator Rob Shelsky, referring to one of his recent books that contain his hollow moon research findings. Now, a lot of people say that what he is saying is totally wrong. He has a totally different idea. He has lots of scientific information, and I think you will find it very interesting. You may not believe him, but you might really decide that he's in fact right, that our moon is hollow and also that aliens rule the sky. Uh, Rob, there there are many people throughout the world who who obviously believe in the presence of UFOs. And it's, it's not a stretch to say that you are one of the world's experts on this subject. And your book, For the Moon is Hollow and Aliens Rule the Sky, certainly confirms that for me. So I've got lots of questions to ask you, and uh, I hope you're prepared. I'm sure you are. In your book, you contend that our moon may not be solid. You say it might be hollow or have large caverns inside it. Can you tell us what makes you believe that or say that?
4: Well, it started when I was at another radio show, Coast to Coast. and they asked me if I, what did I thought about the hollow moon theory. And I laughed it off. I said, <laughs> it's ridiculous. The moon's there. It has uh, uh, an effect on the Earth, on the tides. It's, it's real. It's not hollow. And then I was a little interested in why they would even ask that. So I started um, researching it and delving further into it. And it was a slow process, but there is so much odd about our moon that it could well be hollow or at least have very large hollow spaces within it. The evidence, if not a smoking gun, is certainly um, mounting in that favor. Famous scientists, uh, in NASA especially, have even said that they feared the moon might be hollow. One uh, astronomer for NASA actually said it's easier to explain the non-existence of our moon than to explain its existence. And there's a lot of other things wrong with the moon. Its density is too low. If it came from material made from the Earth's mantle, it should have about the same density. It doesn't. Its density is so light that if it were any lighter, the moon would float in water. Now, there's a problem there because the apparent size of our moon has been well measured, and yet we cannot understand why it isn't as dense as the Earth is when the rocks that were found on the moon did seem to be of the same density. But overall, the moon is missing mass. So the question is, where is this missing mass? And apparently it might be in the interior. Then too, when the moon is struck, it rings like a bell, not just for a few minutes, but sometimes for up to several hours, as one NASA scientist put it, almost as if it were hollow. So this just goes on and on, and there's all sorts of anomalies on the surface of the moon that also lend itself to this idea. Uh, Big craters are shallow, small craters are deep, as if there were an inner shell that protects meteors from entering too far without making them bounce back out, sort of. The uh, materials on the moon's surface are in the wrong order, with the densest layer on top and the second and third layer being the least dense, that's contrary to everything we know. You put a bunch of dirt in a glass of water, shake it up, and then let it settle out, and it will fall into layers with the densest always being at the bottom. So how do we explain that? There are materials on the moon that just don't seem to belong there, helium-3. Uh, is plentiful on the Moon, it's very rare on Earth. The um, titanium is in the Moon's crust. We don't know how that got there. Neptunium uh, 237 is also on the Moon. Now, that has a half-life of only two and a half million years, approximately. So all the uh, Neptunium on the Moon should have long since uh, degraded to other types of elements, as it has done here on Earth. So how do we explain this odd element on the Moon that shouldn't even be there? It, it, the um, symptoms of this problem of the moon just go on and on. It's orbit, the size of it compared to the Earth. The fact that it's in just the perfect place for eclipses and the solar and vernal equinoxes that we have, uh, optumnal and vernal equinoxes, I should say. But um, and, and, and the uh, idea that these large dark areas on the moon that face the Earth, are, they're called mayors or maria. And... Uh, the ancients referred to them as sea. Maria is Latin for seas. But uh, they're not. The large areas of um, apparently lava basalt. The other side of the moon doesn't have any, just the side facing the Earth. The other side of the moon has far more craters. The near side has less. The moon's orbit is too circular. Only Venus has a slightly more circular orbit than the moon and maybe one other one other uh, uh, body in our solar system. So it's very odd that way. It should be elliptical and it's not. It's really almost perfectly circular. Secondly, the position of the uh, orbit is strange. We don't know how we got the moon. There are five main theories of how the moon came here, but we didn't capture the moon. Uh, The moon was too large. It would have been moving too fast. It would have not happened. The earth would have gone shooting off into deep space and left the solar system where the moon would have, but it just shouldn't have happened unless we had a much thicker and bigger atmosphere on the earth at that time and there's no proof of that so we can't account for why the moon is in such a perfect orbit at such a perfect distance unless it was moved there now um, the impact theory of theia striking the earth and creating the moon doesn't work for where the moon's orbit is none of the existing theories work there is one it's called the spaceship moon theory That was by two Soviet scientists in the Soviet Academy of Sciences who came up with it. And the reason they came up with it is because they couldn't explain it during the normal means. And if the moon was moved there, then we have to ask who moved it there and why. And are they still there? And there seems to be some evidence they may be. We have uh, rather weird transient lunar phenomena, which has been going on for centuries. NASA documented some 500 years of it. And there's things going on constantly we cannot account for on the moon. And we don't know why. The, uh, the moon is um, a very strange place, a very strange object.
1: And if you've wondered about the inner workings of NASA, and who hasn't? Journalist and best-selling author David W. Brown talks about NASA scientists who worked for years to learn more about a large saltwater ocean beneath Europa's icy surface. Now, Europa is Mars moon. The interesting thing about this interview is the fact that he really talks about what goes on at NASA uh, and also a lot of the quarrels that people have and uh, who wants to do this and who wants to do that. So I think you'll really find this interview quite interesting. David, your book, The Mission, A True Story, it reads like a novel, yet I understand that it's, it, it's not a novel because you tell a factual story. So please explain how you came to write The Mission and why you wrote it as, I guess what you would call narrative nonfiction, really interesting way of writing.
5: It's uh, well, I came to the story, uh, um, about eight years ago. Um, as a, I mean, as a storyteller myself, you're always on the lookout for, um, high stakes, um, tales, um, stories with, uh, interesting characters that are and, and um, and, and sort of compelling, uh, compelling personal narratives, um, Writing a book about space is is always a challenge because a lot of readers just aren't familiar with it, right? You don't want to you don't want to pile on astrophysics and astrobiology and and geomorphology and all sorts of sciences that few of us have heard of um, outside of the actual scientists themselves. So in writing the story, I decided uh, to use to use that creative nonfiction storytelling style, which which is bringing in elements of poetry bringing in elements of fiction in order to tell a nonfiction story. Um, The story of the mission, um, and forgive me if I'm if I'm doing a monologue here. That's Um,
1: okay. I like monologues. (laughs) uh, the, uh,
5: The so the story of the mission is about a small team of scientists and engineers who spent really about 20 years trying to convince NASA to fly a spacecraft to Europa, which is Jupiter's ocean moon. And uh, Europa matters because it has a liquid saltwater ocean. It's about the size of our moon, but there's three times more water on Europa than there is on planet earth. Um, uh, as a result of that, of course, it, it means that it's probably the most likely place in the solar system beyond earth to have life and not just single celled organisms, but, it, but conceivably complex life. So maybe, maybe fish, uh, maybe sea monsters and, and the story itself Sort of reveals the inside turmoil at NASA to get this mission going. And you asked, what you know, why? Why did I write this book? Um, because if there is complex life on another world, um, that would have implications for every you know man, woman, and child on the planet. It would have implications for science, obviously. Bio, the biology textbooks text would have to be rewritten. It would have implications for religion. Because this would be a Genesis on another world. This would be a second book of Genesis that one would write. And of course philosophy itself, because you're asking the question or you're answering the question, are we alone? Where did we come from? How did this all begin? Um, so as a storyteller, those are those are irresistible uh, ingredients for for a uh, for a story.
1: Now I just wanted to ask you, were there some of the people <clears throat> that you interviewed thought that perhaps there was, real life there not not human life but uh, something like humanoids did anyone ever say anything to you about that
5: the uh, the general idea is um all right so in order to for life to take hold on another world you need three things you need water um which obviously Europa has um in spades like I said three times more than on the planet earth and just to be clear not like not like some weird scientist definition of water, green alien goo, but but liquid salt water, just like in our ocean. You could take a cup and plunge it in the water and drink it, and it would be very unhealthy for you. But your body would know what to do with it, right? Could so you, you
1: need... float in it? Well, let's say when an astronaut goes there, do you think he or she will be able to float on it, in it?
5: Well, uh, I mean, so there are plans, you know, long-term plans like like hundred-year plans for things like submarines, right? Because there is an ice shell separating space and that ocean. But it, once you get through that ice, yes, it, it, things would swim in there just mm-hmm. as they swim in our ocean. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing you need for life are organics. So that's like carbon, hydrogen compounds that contain carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus. Um, and that's, you know, that that's pretty common in the solar system. But that combined with with water And you need one more thing. You need chemical energy. So Europa's ocean exists beneath a 15-kilometer ice shell. It's really thick. There's like the... the What's
1: that in miles? Can you make that into miles? It's too hard. (laughs) Let's
5: just say because it's thicker and thinner in different places, let's just say 10 miles and that'll be safe. And and somebody can go to Wikipedia and check my work later. Um, (laughs) We won't. won't. Yeah, yeah. just trust me, yeah, it's 10 miles. Actually nobody knows. So you know what, I'm Uh, just as right as anyone else. Oh, that's not true. But but, but the idea is um, because there is an ice shell that's so thick, no sunlight is getting into that ocean so you're not getting things like photosynthesis right so so the sorts of things that our plants would get or much of you know the, the the upper the upper portion of the ocean would get but at the bottom of that ocean water touches rock and um that's when you get interesting chemistry happening right water touching rock things are going to happen plus it's hot in those rocks right in those crevices water goes Uh in there, water comes back out having been changed in some way, likewise, there might be hydrothermal vents down there, which is a crazy sounding term. But what that means is basically geysers on the bottom of the ocean, we have them on our planet too, Uh and life teams there. So so in all to answer your question, do scientists think you know, have they said there's life there, a lot of them are absolutely convinced of it. I mean, just as 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 much as you're convinced that tomorrow, the sun will again rise. Um, is that question definitively answered? No. Will will we see the answer to that question in our lifetime? Yes.